0: Hey everybody how y'all doing i'm michael i'm joined by alex as always how's it going and it's another episode of falling through plot holes a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails alex how are you doing today
1: i'm doing good i'm just playing video games thinking about video games i love video games
0: video games are great i have also been playing the video games and thinking about the video games I keep trying to convince myself that I probably should play new video games, and I continue to fail to do so. Yeah. As, uh, I continue to play old games like Skyrim and mm-hmm. Mega Man 4 for the Game Boy. So I decided to try to speed run that, which has uh, been a mistake so far. Yeah. Yeah, I was
1: going to say, that one
0: seems special. It's uh, it's interesting, I'll say. Hmm. it's It's an interesting little game. But yeah, today we're not talking about either of those things. Alex, I got a very, very strange episode for you. I'm excited for that. Yeah. It, usually, when I do an episode on on a particular game, I have an idea of what it, that game is about. You know, like more than just like a passing knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. I have an idea of like how I want to take this, what direction I want to go in with it, uh, how I want to loop it to different, uh, you know, different aspects of its development, uh, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then I got reminded of this game and was like, yeah, that was a really weird thing. I should look into it a little bit more. And then as things slowly coalesced and I wrote my notes out, I got this episode ready. I realized just how kind of nuts this thing was. Mm -hmm. And I ended up kind of falling in love with it a little bit. And that's because it happens to be a special type of game, a special type of terrible game specifically. And I think maybe the best way to start this out, Alex, is by just kind of asking you, have you ever played the hot 1993 Genesis and Super Nintendo game Cool Spots?
1: I don't think I have. I'm pretty sure I've seen footage of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've played it myself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for those of you at home who don't know what Cool Spot is, Cool Spot is the video game that stars... Well, the character named Cool Spot, the mascot for Seven Up, a a soda product that at one point was very popular, and nowadays is like kind of like the also ran to Mountain Dew. Like I think it's like considered to be technically still the tenth most popular soda brand in the United States. Huh. Which, uh, given that it's hard to find the Seven Up around where I'm at, I'm not so certain that's true. Hmm. Now, this is a really, really strange license game. Uh, because first off, that's just kind of a weird game to pick. Yeah, a little bit. But it also ended up being like a surprisingly competent game when it came out. Mm -hmm. Now, I've always had a fascination with licensed games for a couple of reasons. For one, Alex, they don't really exist anymore, or at least not how we used to know them, right? Right. Yeah, like uh nowadays licensed games are like weird mobile games uh you know properties licensed to pure games such as fortnite or like just actual big budget games in our own right such as gotham knights mm-hmm. or guardians of the galaxy uh, there are also often properties nowadays that make sense for these sort of games like superheroes obviously make sense right uh, the u.s exclusive mascot for a second tier lemon lime soda does not make any sense
1: no that's a weird pick
0: It is a weird pick, but that was surprisingly common in the 90s -hmm. and early 2000s for reasons that I think mostly has to do with executives at major publishers having no idea what the kids like. (laughs) (laughs) And my point with all this is that licensed games nowadays make sense and are often taken seriously by everyone involved in them. You see, Gotham Knights, people worked hard on that. It Mm -hmm. wasn't well-received, but people worked hard on that. You know, same with Guardians of the Galaxy. You, even if you go back like a good ten years or so, like Ark, you know, the uh, Arkham games are you know, meant were meant to be actual good games. Whereas licensed games in the nineties, they were shovelware at best. Right. And honestly, I kind of love that aspect around them because they clearly had like quarters cut. They were clearly having to work with some really strong constraints, and sometimes you just make stuff that is absolutely ridiculous. Now. Unlike today's games, where they're often competent in a very boring way. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're not the licensed games I'm interested in. Once again, I'm interested in that 90s licensed game where cynical cash grab meets absentee property holder meets underfunded game company. Yes.
1: It's a powerful recipe.
0: It is. Do, do you have a particular favorite licensed game?
1: Uh, see, I'm trying to think, again, how many of them have I played? Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't I can't think off the top of. Okay, sorry. When you say licensed game, because I'm I'm already in this mind space of things like Cool Spot Adventure, where mm-hmm. it's not necessarily like like uh, Batman: Arkham Asylum is probably one of the strongest like licensed property games
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that I've played. Um, uh, Insomniac's latest Spider-Man game is also really good. Although I have a special place in my heart for the 2000. Four?
0: Yeah, the Neversoft one.
1: Yeah, based on the yeah. first Sam Raimi movie. Uh not a very good game, but incredibly delightful to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like really weird ones go, I've never played it. Um There is a game called, what is it called? Darkened Sky? Mm-hmm. Something to that effect? Mm-hmm. Uh, Are are you familiar with the game I'm talking about?
0: You asshole.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See, the problem is, as I was digging into this, I was like, what are the odds of what I'm going to say is the game that we're supposed to talk about today? (laughs) (laughs) What are the odds of that?
0: Yeah, what are the odds of that, huh? I I was just sitting here just being like, this motherfucker he better not he better not he better no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, darkest sky is great and there's a reason why we're going to be talking about that today w- what do you know about darkest sky just uh, off the top I, of your head.
1: I know that it is a uh a sort of fantasy rpg mm-hmm. uh and that it is a licensed brand game for the skittles hard candy
0: indeed it is yes you are quite correct you are quite correct about that,
1: <laughs> oh man, I love Darkened sky so much
0: it is the darkened sky is so great there is't there is a really good reason why I picked that as today's episode. We're gonna get into that because wow it, not only <laughs> is like the development and like conception behind it and like everything it like it ties into when it comes to a license game just like so interesting to me mm-hmm. but it's plot is also it's also interesting in a way as well like it's not. Uh, they're going for things in it. Yes. They're going for things in it.
1: Yeah, they they really put... It's like one of the last, like, brand video games I can think of. And then mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, this is an entertainment property we're making a video game of. As much as, this is a brand we have and we want to make a video game with this brand. Mm-hmm. And it it is definitely one of the last ones that's like, okay, how far can we go with the brand? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, it really is. It, it, there was a very much a strong absentee uh, property holder that's going on in this. When we get to this development, it, it's going to get incredibly weird, incredibly quickly, because first off, this game shouldn't exist. No. Like, and I'm not even in a sense of like, oh, nobody should have made a Skittles game, which is true. But like, there was actually no attention to even get this license in the first place. It mm-hmm. just sort of happened. And then they <laughs> went well, I guess we should make a game with this. <laughs> Which, yeah, I, um... It's it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Now, I, I guess this is gonna kind of dovetail into a big reason why I love these sort of licensed games, because, like, once again, games that, like, involve properties or brands that make sense, like Superman, mm-hmm. like, that's cool and whatnot, like, but, like, I prefer things that are often involve intellectual properties that just don't make sense. Right. Like, Skittles, for instance.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, like, I'm sure the executive in charge of greenlighting the home improvement game for the Super Nintendo, a system whose core audience age was around 12. <laughs> uh, sure, he thought that was a great idea. I certainly did, since it features Tim Allen firing a nail gun at dinosaurs in literally the first stage of the game. But I mm-hmm. like trash. Yeah. And, and like sometimes they like, do make sense, but all the money was spent on acquiring the license, so all the corners had to be cut. Mm-hmm. Like, a Batman Forever video game is obviously a good idea. Right. Which makes it a shame that, due to money and time constraints, Acclaim had to make the game using the Mortal Kombat engine they made, (laughs) which turns out is a bad fit for an action platformer.
1: As we saw several times? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they they would... (laughs) uh, To be fair, it would be midway later who would decide, what if we made an action platformer using the Mortal Kombat engine? Right. Did you not see Batman Forever? Did, Did you... Really? Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And like, even when all the stars align and then we have an like obvious slam dunk, sometimes greed gets in the way and ruins things. Mm-hmm. Home Alone should absolutely work. Yes. Like, you have a perfect audience that's the same age as, you know, you know playing video games and whatnot, willing to buy anything related to it. Interesting premise, and it causes an interesting premise for the game, which is why its license was split like five different ways and given to five different developers. To make five different games that are all radically different from one another. <laughs> Which one is the good game? Uh, spoilers, uh, none of them were. None they were them. all bad. Yep. Although, interestingly enough, NES game. Made by Bethesda. Hmm. hmm. Funny that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was one of their first games on console. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Three years later, they would make Elder Scrolls Arena. It's a weird turnaround, that one. Yep. My long-winded point with all of this is that licensed games from this era are almost universally terrible, while also being terribly interesting in one way or another. But every once in a while, something accident somebody accidentally makes a good one. Mm-hmm. And this leads us back to Cool Spot. Mm-hmm. So Cool Spot, released in 1993 by Virgin Games and released once again for the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, uh, primarily. It did also come out on, like, the Amiga and whatnot. hmm is a game starring 7-Up's U.S.-based mascot, also named Cool Spot, as he rescues his friends who have been captured by bad guys for reasons. Reasons. Yeah. Uh, cool Spot, by the way, is um literally just a red spot. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a red circle. Uh, mm-hmm. If you see the 7-Up logo, you see the word 7-Up in a red spot. That's Cool Spot. Uh, he's basically brought to life with uh basically spindly limbs, uh, large black sunglasses, and large white tennis shoes that are about as big as the spot himself. It's a very, very 90s sort of look. Yeah. A very Chester Cheetah sort of look as well, which kind of makes sense because the international distributors for 7-Up is uh, PepsiCo, Mm. which owns the Chester Cheetah brand. Uh Uh-huh. So it's an incredibly competent platforming game that was very well-received at the time. It averaged around like a nine out of 10 when it came to reviews. Like, Mm -hmm. people loved this game,
1: (laughs) right? It was actually good,
0: yeah. And that makes sense when you find out that oh, this was one of the last games made by the people who'd go on the forums Shiny Entertainment and make Uh Earthworm Jim, like Mm -hmm. people like Dave Perry, Ed Schofield, and whatnot. It was by all accounts a complete success and would spawn a bad sequel called Spots Goes to Hollywood. That was pretty hyped up at the time and was a complete failure, killing any potential Cool Spot gaming franchise forever. Now, this is probably a good thing because Cool Spot, the character, is very dumb. Yes. And the idea that the mascot for a now basically dead soda seems insane. Mm hmm. However, in 1993, it wasn't. And the reason is because while it's not the progenitor of this trend, it is an example of a very modern trend in advertising. The advertisement being made not only to sell a product, but to be a product itself. Now, what I mean by that, and maybe you remember this from your childhood, Alex. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I certainly do. Cause my family liked cool spot, it's Texas, I guess. <laughs> is that cool spot alongside seven up is basically forgotten now, right? It, it's right. nobody remembers that. Yeah. From its debut in 1987 until it started being phased out around 1997. It was a very popular character. Hmm. Everything from T-shirts, keychains, stickers, posters, plush toys, bendable figures, and of course, video games would feature CoolSpot. It was almost to the point that, that the fact CoolSpot was meant to sell soda was secondary to CoolSpot selling itself. Right. Once again, CoolSpot didn't invent this. Uh, things like the California Raisins did this before them, mm-hmm. but this became an increasing trend in the future. Everything from Burger King's creepy mascot, uh, uh, where, like which they actually made games from. To oh, I from...
1: forgot that those games came out
0: too. Yeah, yeah. You'd go to a Burger King to buy three separate games. Oh. <laughs> One of which was admittedly not that bad. Meat mm. King's kind of okay. It's
1: kind of okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, so everything from that to like flow from progressive auto insurance all follow this format to a degree. And now this is where we need to go back to 2002 there's a couple of brands around this time that are going to lean heavily into this format and will be relevant to today's story and this is would be about where we would introduce dark and sky until well yeah (laughs) things happened so let's talk about dark and sky a little bit this is a game that was released in 2002 developed for the pc and later ported to the nintendo gamecube of the same year. It's a licensed game that's not going to be obvious what it's based off of. We, It's going to yeah. be based off of Skittles, but when you look at it, you're not really sure what this is actually supposed to be. I didn't realize
1: it was a licensed Skittles game until about 10 years after I first saw it.
0: And that is 100% by intention as we'll mm-hmm. get into. Like this is a game that hates the fact that it's a Skittles <laughs> game, which is part of the reason why I love it. Yeah. And the reason why this is, is going to become apparent very quick, but in order to get to that point, we need to talk about the publisher, Simon & Schuster Interactive. Alex, I'm sure you've heard of good old Simon & Schuster.
1: Yeah, uh, famed producer, developer, publishers of Dark and & Sky, and, um...
0: A lot of Star Trek games. Ah, uh, <laughs> hmm. Well, I was thinking more in the sense of the book company that is the parent company of, of Simon Schuster Interactive. Ah, uh,
1: okay. Yeah, no, I don't know books.
0: Ah, fair enough. <laughs> well, let me tell you about them. Cool. Now, for I think most of the audience, Simon Schuster should be familiar because it's a nearly 100 year old book publisher. As of this podcast recording, it is 99 years old specifically. It's one of the two largest publishers alongside Penguin Books. They were actually recently in the news because I believe it was them trying to merge with Penguin and then the government literally slapped that down (laughs) and said, no, you can't do that. Now, they are responsible for publishing roughly about 2,000 different book titles per year, like bespoke titles. Mm. And odds are you've probably read one of their books over the years because they literally publish everything, every genre, like from like, you know, weird cookbooks to far-right trash by Glenn Beck to everything in between. Now, their company origins are kind of funny because mm-hmm. one of the original founder's aunts was like literally like, hey, why isn't there a book that's just a bunch of crossword puzzles that maybe I could buy in the supermarket and I don't think about ever? And then the original Simon and the original Schuster were like, oh, yeah, we could make a fortune if we did that. <laughs> and they were totally right. That's pretty smart. It's pretty smart. And I hate it because, man, it was so much easier to get rich back then. yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, yeah, what if we just, like, I don't know, started a company that got, basically had a book of 100 crossword puzzles that you just would buy for your grandma, like, two days before Christmas, because you have no idea what to get her. Maybe if we just did that, we would Maybe become a monolithic just did that. monolithic book company. And it, the answer was, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, nearly 80 years later, we arrive in the year 1994. And with the rise of multimedia such as the internet and video games, uh, traditional print media was starting to feel a bit of a squeeze. Now, Simon & Schuster, the company, Mm -hmm. saw the writing on the wall that this was going to be very disruptive to their business. And they're right. While the doom and gloom of digital media destroying traditional print hasn't quite come to pass, it has been disruptive and they were right to think along those lines. Mm -hmm. The problem is that they're going to go about this in the most old money way possible. They're going to buy a bunch of companies and hope for the best. Yeah. Now, to start, they're going to play this safe, Alex, and they're going to mm-hmm. buy a German book publisher called Market Technic. So it's kind of staying in their lane to start with. Mm-hmm. Now, Market Technic for the past two decades, has been dedicated to publishing magazines about computers and technology. Okay. So makes perfect sense. Yeah. In their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. The second and more consequential thing they're going to do, though, to get into this landscape is they're going to form a partnership with a company called Davidson & Associates to start a publishing house called Simon & Schuster Interactive. Now, essentially, Simon & Schuster would use their existing knowledge and financial resources to publish software, while Davidson Associates would use their existing knowledge of the gaming industry and gaming development to give Simon & Schuster a foot in the door. hmm Basically, it's it's more or less Simon Schuster is sort of like lightly investing in Davidson. Like they don't outright own them or anything like that. right? Uh, Which is going to become a slight problem here in a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you heard of Davidson & Associates at all? I don't believe so. Doesn't sound familiar. They're probably more known for one of their subsidiaries if anything else. And you probably don't know about them because they're going to die a very bad death in about two years after this partnership starts. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Actually, four years technically. But basically, we're not going to focus on this partnership for too long because Davidson & Associates is actually going to be completely acquired by another company in 1996 called Compucard International, a company that you probably should know about, but I would not be shocked if you didn't. I don't think I do. You would know about them for bad reasons. (laughs) Yeah. They sound (laughs) like a bad reasons company. Oh, they are. So, CopyCard International was a huge company who had, like, a side business in one, uh, as, like, one of the first companies involved in e-commerce with their Uh, Shoppers uh, Advantage service. Basically, they would help facilitate transfers and have, like, deals with, like, America Online and other mm -hmm. companies, you know, not quite like what PayPal does, maybe sort of like a proto-PayPal, almost like a mm. proto-storefront. Their business is a little confusing. Mm-hmm. And if it sounds confusing, but, like, kind of impressive in a way that maybe sounds like a fraud, that's because it is, because their primary business was uh, fraud. Yeah! Yeah! So in 1996, they acquired Davidson & Associates, as well as Sierra Online, for a combined $3 billion, to which... Hmm, that's mm. a lot of money. Yeah, sure is. That's a lot of money for 1996. Uh, they were then subsequently investigated by the SEC in 1998. <laughs> and they were found to have committed what was at the time the largest accounting scandal in history, Ooh. US history specifically.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I love late 90s.com commerce crimes.
0: Oh, yeah. They're oh, so, so out good. there. It's so out there. Yeah, uh, to get into the details of what exactly they would do would require an entire podcast episode by Uh itself because it is incredibly complicated with what they exactly did. The point being is that the scale of fraud that they committed was so large that one of the smaller aspects of it was that they basically couldn't account for $500 million. Awesome. Yeah, uh, it seems like it was funnelled off to the uh, to the owners of the company, but, but that that's like once again that's like one of the smaller right that that's it. a minor yeah
1: now indiscretion
0: this would result in a series of fines and you know civil lawsuits that would happen people are going to go to jail for this for years mm. and uh, eventually it's going to lead to the complete breakup of the company into uh, such uh, such existing companies such as Avis car rentals Oh. Ah, okay yeah oh, hmm. yeah yeah um. Uh, which uh, Avis, by the way, owns Hertz, which is embroiled in their own little scandal right now, if yeah. I remember correctly.
1: <laughs>
0: so, uh, you know, it just continues going. Yeah. Yeah, and this because of this, uh, Davidson and Associates ended up essentially dying, as well as Sierra. So uh, legendary video game company Sierra kind of dies <sighs> because of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, their brands would end up being sold to a Fr- uh, French publisher by the name of Havas. Uh, alongside davidson's much more well-known uh, subsidiary blizzard entertainment mm. so that's how you would know davidson is because okay. of blizzard right and then blizzard actually survived all that and became its own company and that's what well, well that's where we are now yeah well and then company then in the other sense, things happened yeah own company in the sense of they existed long enough to be you know sold to activision right a so, really good
1: business decision that would never have any negative side effects
0: and to be fair, it worked out well for him for about fifteen years. True, and then it very much suddenly stopped. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's how you would know about copy card. Once again, it's it's mm-hmm. incredibly overshadowed because it's it was the largest financial scandal in U.S. history, mm-hmm. and then uh, a WorldCom happened like two years later. Right, and then Enron happened four <laughs> years later.
1: <laughs> oh, the nineties really just
0: just was all about amping it up. It really was in a way that I absolutely love. So, the point being is that Simon and Schuster Interactive all of a sudden don't have a partner. Mm. But that's okay, Alex. They're going to soldier on, man. All right. And by this, I mean they're going to publish anything they can get their hands (laughs) on. There is zero quality control that's going to go on this. So, according to Moby Games, they're going to publish 69 games. And I swear some of these titles are fake games you'd see on like Homestar Runner. Mm-hmm. Like, I- I'm going to show you a few pictures because okay. I-, I have to I have to send a few things to you because these are just absolutely stupid. to be three separate games. Okay. I'm going to start with uh, this first one. This, and I'm going to post these all in the-, the show notes, so the viewers at home could uh, could follow along with this one. but uh did you, did you receive that, Alex? Oh yeah! Yeah, you remember that hot Dreamcast banger who wants to beat up a millionaire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, yeah, a really great game that's a parody of Who Wants to Win? Uh, who Wants to Be you a Millionaire? Be a millionaire. Yeah. That uh, basically involves rich people being obnoxious, and then you beat them up when they get questions wrong. Cool. Uh, it's a game that is off it's a game that is hilariously racist. And by hilarious, <laughs> I mean it's just very racist. Um. <laughs> It's, I I almost like actually picked the picture of the like the very racist thing. I was like, you know what? No, <laughs> it, I will just say it is. Just take my word for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I believe it. It's yeah, I was I was there for the turn of the, the millennia. It was humor was very different.
0: Yeah, very very different. Uh, this one, I'm gonna post a, just a picture of the gameplay, just contextless, and then I will actually show you what the uh, the box art is. Okay. I want you to just describe for the audience what the hell that is.
1: That's uh, literally women in lingerie on pedestals.
0: Mm -hmm. While
1: Mm -hmm. a man and several lizard people, I'm going to guess, look on from (laughs) uh, screens on the side. It's so confusing,
0: right? Yeah. This was the Um, first image I saw of this game, and I had no idea what it was. This game, this game is Panty Raider from Pure oh, to Immaturity. God.
1: I think I've actually seen gameplay of this game, and it's wildly broken.
0: I bet it is. It, I believe this game was released in 1999. I don't have that pulled up, but it definitely does not look like it's a game from 1999. This looks like a very much like 1995. We learned mm-hmm. how to do 3D graphics, and here it is. Yes. It's a game about three space aliens finding out that Earth's women are hot and it's threatening to destroy the world unless a hapless young man can go and either buy or steal women's lingerie and give it to them. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, that, oh boy. But that's not my favorite, Alex. Okay. My favorite is this one. Because I, this is the this is the one where I, I saw it and I was like, yeah, this is just something like Strong Bad would like make up in part as like a Strong Bad email mm-hmm. on Homestar Runner.
1: Forbes Corporate Warrior, the only action-packed 3D business strategy game. <laughs> business is war.
0: And there's an explosion on there while a businessman is wearing an old school <laughs> VR helmet.
1: This, this can't be a real game.
0: It can't be a real game, right? Apparently it is.
1: Doom meets Wharton School.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this is, oh, this is, this is going to put Simon and Schuster back on the map right here.
0: Oh, yeah, it's going to make a millions, Alex. It's going to make a millions. Alex, You'll be shocked to learn that none of these games did well, nor were well received.
1: No, no, I don't. I don't imagine that they were.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's like the state of that is the state of Simon and Schuster as they just attempt to just flail their way into the video game industry. And you'll be shocked to know it's not going to get much better from here. Now, the original titles that they were making. I, well, I guess Forbes is not ne- necessarily original title, but that mm-hmm. was just funny. Yes. They weren't cutting it, the point being, so I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. But what was working for them was the plethora of licensed titles that they were releasing alongside of all this stuff, like Dear mm-hmm. Adventure. Uh, now, particularly their Star Trek titles were doing well. They, they, had, they were one of two companies that had a license. The other was Interplay, mm-hmm. who had a license to make Star Trek games around this time. And they were making stuff like, deep, like a bunch of Deep Space Nine games. and right. Star Trek, Starship Creator. A game where you just literally just make starships, but don't do anything with them. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> literally
0: reviews for the first game were like, well, it's cool, I can make starships, but then you but don't do then anything. Then they're just, they're just there.
1: It's not really a game. It's more of a 3D
0: modeling tool. Yeah, which is kind of neat in of itself, yeah. but it, it was a strange choice. Yeah, I will say Starship Creator 2 was actually pretty cool, because you could actually make ships in that, and then deploy them in another one of the games that he made, uh, Deep Space 9, The Dominion Wars. Okay. Yeah, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's that's a cool idea. Yeah. Now, even though these games weren't well-received by critics, they did sell well, which, you know, makes sense. This was during, like, kind of the second renaissance of Star Trek. Right. Now... Because of these successes, they began to shift more in the direction of licensed titles, and this would include stuff like Busy, like stuff based upon *Busy Town*, *Daria*, *Sabrina the Teenage Witch*, and mm. *Macy the Mouse*. Uh, mm. A mix of like some more adult titles and like more kid-friendly fare. Like they were painting a broad brush with this. Uh-huh. But by the year 2000, Simon and Schuster wanted to develop games based upon one of the most successful ad campaigns in history. Like, they saw how well this was going. They're like, we just saw something on TV that looks fantastic. We can make a great video game out of this. Mm-hmm. In 1995, the pet food and confectionery company Mars Incorporated debuted a new ad campaign for their flagship candy, M&M's. Very simple commercial. Uh, mm-hmm. Featuring anthropomorphized M&M characters, red and yellow, hanging out on some dude's couch, lazily telling the dude that, yes, we actually exist. We're right here. You're not high. It's fine. <laughs> now, you, you may or may not have seen this commercial.
1: I don't I, know if I've seen that particular one, actually. Mm, I know you
0: definitely saw the follow-up commercial. Because the follow-up mm-hmm. commercial is the 1996 Christmas commercial the yep. Santa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It is a commercial that is so famous, it is still playing to this day, where yep. the m ms come in, see Santa, and they are both surprised, both exist, and they both faint. It's a great commercial. Yep. And it makes sense that like it is still airy to this day. Although I guess we will see what's going to happen uh, next Christmas. Because while this is going to be the start of maybe the most successful candy commercial franchise in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, most you know popular advertising campaign. Uh, it, it, as of this writing. Like literally when I started writing these episodes, uh, this was still true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Over the course of the week, that ad campaign has now been polled. Entirely, mostly because the worst people you know think the characters have gone woke and aren't literally sexy anymore.
1: Uh, Are we still doing this?
0: Well, there's actually a weird twist to that story as of this morning. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Because the New York Times came out with an article that's like, uh, you may want to keep an eye on the Super Bowl because this might all be just a giant marketing stunt. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, I don't know how to feel about that.
1: Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> repulsed but also it's kind of a good bit
0: yeah yeah i'm i'm gonna feel probably every feeling possible yeah about probably
1: that one. <laughs> i will probably enjoy it on some deeply cynical and morally outraged level
0: yeah yeah i'm i'm probably going to let out a very hearty laugh when it inevitably happens <laughs> Now, my point with all mm-hmm. of this is that this was a prime opportunity to license these characters for a video game because these m M&M m characters were huge. Right. Like, th- there was so much merchandise of them. They would, they would be spokespersons for, like, other products. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they would be featured in, like, movie advertising campaigns. Like, th- to say that these characters were big would be honestly understating it. And because of that, Simon Schuster saw this and went, we can make video games out of this. Right. And so Simon & Schuster Interactive entered negotiations with Mars to do just that. Now, Alex, they were a w- little worried about getting the license because there were other companies that were also competing for the right to license these characters. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be the company that makes the bad m M&M and kart racer really badly. Yep. So they decided to hedge their bets and go like, well, if we don't get this, let's just ask for a- another license just in case. To their surprise, they got both. And that's not only how we got a bunch of M&M's games, but also one game based around the fruit candy you're always disappointed by because it's not <laughs> M&M's. Yep. Skittles. Actually, Alex, how do you feel about Skittles? Uh,
1: basically what you just described. They're fine, but I'd rather have M&M's.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you get the massive pack of like fun-sized candies at Christmas, uh, not Christmas, uh, Halloween. Mm. And you're like, oh man, this is all, uh, all Skittles, Skittles now. Skittles, mm. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna enjoy it, but not as much as I would otherwise. Yeah. Chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. So, Alex, this raises an obvious question. Why Skittles? Uh-huh. For Simon Schuster, Schuster, uh, we already have that answer. Because they were worried they weren't gonna get M&M's. Right. For Mars, the answer is cynical. Well, of course. Despite a very successful ad campaign in the 90s, the uh, Taste the Rainbow campaign, Mm -hmm. there was a noted downtrend in sales of Skittles to teenagers and young adults starting in the late 90s and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And so while Mars wasn't actively shopping the brand for a licensing deal, when Simon Schuster asked for it, they were like, yeah, kids love video games. Yeah, absolutely. This will make it popular with the 20-year-olds. You know, you just
1: said that, and it helped crystallize how I feel about Skittles. Um, (laughs) Everything around... Everything other than eating Skittles is better than eating Skittles. Mm-hmm. Their Skittles. commercials are honestly pretty good, and their packaging and presentation are strong.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. It is. Skittles is a brand that tries hard.
1: It sure does. And they have, like, a, or at least have had a wide variety of different, like, flavor combinations. Oh, and yeah. And I, I really appreciate that variety and, like, options.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The Wildberry skittles were really good, if I remember correctly. I
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Skittles are great, except mm-hmm. eating them, which is just okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's because you you can't just like throw them all in your mouth at once because they're all different yeah. flavors. You got to like. And they're really chewy. Yeah. Skittles work to eat skittles. That's the issue. Skittles are work. Yeah. It's the same reason why I don't like jelly beans because jelly beans are work. <laughs> yeah. If I'm having candy, I don't want to work. It's actually probably good that I do have to work with candy because... uh, Probably helps, yeah. It gets bad after a while. Yeah. So, yeah, like... Yeah, like, with that, they're like, okay, well, this ad campaign's popular. We can maybe make a game out of this. And, like, the Taste of Rainbow campaign in the 90s was really, really good and really Mm -hmm. out there. Like, for for those of you who are not aware, it usually was, like, fantasy-style commercials that would involve some sort of subject where it's like a woman riding a white horse or like some gargoyles or something like that and then definitely a rainbow would show up skittles would fall from the sky and everybody would be happy and then taste the rainbow would they're really good commercials yeah seemed like a good idea to make a game out of this right at least for mars Mm. now when the first of the m&m's games came out in early 2000 actually in the year 2000 uh it was a pretty big success It only reinforced this idea that a Skittles game had only upside and no downside, at least Mm -hmm. for Mars. Mm. That's going to be the key thing here. Simon & Schuster is going to quickly find this is maybe not a good thing. (laughs) And maybe to start with this, we now need to go to the year 1999. In 1999, a senior producer at Simon & Schuster named Elizabeth Braswell had her boss come into her office and give her the bad news. They wanted her to make a game based on Skittles. Elizabeth immediately shot back, quote, So I said, well, you have two choices. You could fire me now and make the next year and a half much easier on me. Or if you, like, maybe not make me do this, end quote. Her boss was unmoved by this. And so she goes on to explain, quote, That night I went to a bar called Prava and I got drunk because I was like, this is it. This is the end of my career, end quote. Strong start. <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. Can't blame her. That's that's how I'd feel.
0: Mhm. I should also point out this is the opening quote to a article released 3 months before the game came out that was meant to promote the game. Mm. Real tone setter that. <laughs> so, Elizabeth Braswell had been a producer at Simon Schuster Interactive since 1996. And is almost unquestionably their most successful producer. Mhm. This is mostly because she was involved either directly or at least in some way with all the different Star Trek games they made, Mm -hmm. uh, including Star Trek Borg, a really, air quotes good, good (laughs) FMV game, Starship Creator, and the two different Deep Space Nine games that would eventually come out. Uh, Now, this is how we get back to Dark and Sky, a game ostensibly about Skittles that tries it's hardest to not be about Skittles. <laughs> Darkest Sky is going to be the last game she's going to produce for them. Mm. And this is going to be a bit of a shame because one thing I take from that quote, as well as her About Me page on her website, she's currently a writer right now. She, mm-hmm. she started writing novels after this. Okay. Is that if she, she is, if nothing else, passionate about what she does.
1: Mm.
0: Once again, she's nowadays an author, some renowned, and is someone whose favorite game of all time is Turrican 2. Which is not only a great choice, but also reveals that she's British. Uh-huh. She's a fan of sci-fi and comic books, proudly states on her website that she sat in the Voyager's captain's chair and walked the decks of Deep Space Nine. And my point with all this is clear that she cares, and I suspect she really enjoyed her time working on those Star Trek games. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense why she might be a little crushed when her boss comes in and tells her to make a Skittles game, of all things. yeah. Now, Liz is going to be a bit of a fighter about this. And as this article from Computer Games Online goes on to describe, quote, Under the soothing influence of alcohol, Braswell decided to make the game. But more than that, she decided she would try to make a fun game. If that game was going to be a marketing vehicle for fruit-flavored candies, well, so be it, end quote. Mm. If it isn't obvious, I like Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. At least as much as you're going to like somebody you've never met. Yep, I think that's valid. And maybe one of the biggest tragedies about this, Alex, is that this is going to be a story of a lot of very passionate people trying their hardest to make something cool and then being undermined by the fact it's a Skittles game. Ah, yeah. Now, there's a quote by, I forget who it is, I think it's like Jeff Gerstmann or something like that, Mm -hmm. video game journalist, uh, where he talks about like, hey, nobody ever sets out to make a bad video game. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how shovelware that title is, how small or big it is, Nobody sets out to make a bad video game, but I, I do think that there's definitely levels of passion that go into different types of games that you develop, right? Mm-hmm. Like the MMs Kart Racer that came out for the Wii that has zero sense of speed. I don't know how much passion actually went into that. Yeah,
1: probably not a whole lot.
0: We're going to be talking about a lot of people involved in this that clearly tried super hard. Uh huh. They really, really wanted to make this work. And it's going to lead to kind of a dark punchline at the end. <laughs> so speaking of those people, though, Simon & Schuster mostly didn't do their own development on th- their games. Uh, there's right. some games that they are listed as the developer, but I think they had Shadow Studios that worked on those as well. It- it's kind of hard to say. Mm-hmm. This one's going to be no different. They're going to actually have a different uh, developer that's going to work on this while they handle just the publishing and marketing. And in order to do this, they contracted out the Massachusetts-based development house. Boston Animation to work on this. A Boston Animation is kind of like an all-in-one studio. They not only do like you know the actual programming work, but they also have like voice acting studio, uh, right. do all the art in-house and everything. They're basically meant to be just like an all-in-one. You get them to come in, do your game, don't have to worry about anything else. Uh-huh. Uh, they there's not a whole lot of detail on the company beyond that. Uh, they got their start in 1999 as the primary developers on Richard Scarry's Busy Town. And the following year worked on M&M's The Lost Formulas for Simon & Schuster. So they already had a bit of a relationship with them before they started on Dark & Sky. Right. Uh, the studio itself, once again, had a bit of an odd setup. Uh, the management was based in the United States, but almost all their programmers were based in Kiev. Hmm. So, yeah, okay. weird little disconnect there. Yeah. Now, most of the details I have on this company and their involvement in Dark & Sky comes from, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Dale DeSharon. Uh, Dale Descheron is the founder of Boston Animation who unfortunately is no longer with us. He passed away Mm. sadly of leukemia in 2008. Uh. He's a very interesting guy in his own right though. Uh, Hardcore Gaming 101 has a really good write-up on him that I do Mm -hmm. suggest uh, people look at. Uh, Mostly mostly focusing on his other project that he's well known for. Working for Philips as uh, one of the people responsible for the Zelda CDI games. Uh. Yeah. Man has a very interesting legacy. I will say, um, maybe not exactly the world's best legacy when it comes to making video games, but right. a very interesting legacy, and he seems like a nice guy overall.
1: Wait, which Zelda game?
0: Uh, the two platforming ones. So okay. the yeah, the ones with the good cutscenes, right. not the live-action one, yeah, uh, okay. Zelda's Adventure. So, how development on this worked was that Simon and Schuster was involved in just the high-level concepts. Everything else from design, the writing, voice recording, and whatnot was handled by Boston Animation. Now, right away, this is going to be some difficulties with this. Uh, Boston Animation is going to want to make this more of a kitty game, similar to the M and M's games they've already made. Uh-huh. But this is not going to last. Like Simon Schuster is going to get pressure from Mars to make this more adult. Like Skittles wants this game to be popular with people in their twenties, and a kids game is not going to do that. So they pushed back and boss animation was like, fine, whatever, we'll make your adult game.
1: So is Mars thinking that adults in their 20s are going to be easily swayed to buy candy by playing a video game?
0: It is very clueless. Yes, that, that seems to be the thought.
1: I feel like they're trying to apply marketing strategies for six-year-olds to 22-year-olds.
0: That seems to be the case. Do you see, they seem to really think this thing like video games are big right they're only getting bigger so what if we made a video game for the pc and then later gamecube for some reason uh-huh. that was about skittles and having people making jokes about the grammys
1: <laughs> okay sure
0: yeah all right yeah there's an extended bit about the grammys in this game for some reason
1: <laughs> oh boy
0: yeah it's it gets back to that point i made earlier about how like The perfect license game involves a a property rights holder just not knowing Mm -hmm. jack all about how the industry works or what people want. And just being like, I don't know, the kids like the games. We should make a game. That'll make it popular. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what they did here. So boss animation is like, fine, we're going to do that. They retooled the game and decided to make a game that essentially links all the different Skittles commercials that aired in the late 90s to early 2000s together. Okay. And given, yeah, given they all had a fantasy flair to them, making it an action-adventure fantasy game. hmm Now, there's like four commercials they pulled from. They're all about 30 seconds long, and there's things like, once again, Merlin the Wizard, and a girl on a white horse, and Gargoyles, and they went, I will figure this out, I guess. And they said, hey... Writer Andy Wolfenden, can you do this for us? (laughs) And so that's what they did. They turned to writer Andy Wolfenden to write a script containing all these elements. Andy is a ghostwriter by his own description. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says he's ghostwritten multiple books, uh, including books for New York Times bestselling authors. But in the limited time I had to do the research for this, I wasn't able to find any specific examples. Looking up his name basically just gives the same description that's on his website. And he doesn't list any specific examples. But right. Okay. That's what he claims. And we're going to go with it. I have no, no necessarily any reason to distrust him. And that is yeah. something that does happen in, in uh, when it comes to like, writing and whatnot. Mm. What I can tell you, though, is that he has written for a few games, including Bumper Wars and the Broderbund software classic Darby the Dragon. I don't have a good idea of what his writing style is. But mm-hmm. what I can say is that he did produce a three hundred page script for this game. Wow. Yeah, that seemed like a lot. Uh yeah. huh. I tried looking up before we got started today, like how big was like the script for like Uncharted or some similar scale game, mm-hmm. uh, and I wasn't able to get a solid answer. I do know that most movie scripts are anywhere between eighty to one hundred and ninety pages long, so this is at least like a third bigger than. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I guess 50 percent bigger than a uh, the largest movie scripts, though, for what it's worth. Now, they got the script they got it put together, and the script that they put together was going to end up in the final game relatively unaltered. Uh, now, it might seem a little strange that the that the script's going to be as large as it is, but it does contain like a lot of like pop culture and fourth wall breaking humor, mm-hmm. and it is a script that is very verbose. But like, there's a lot of dialogue that happens in this game, so I can totally see why it kind of ballooned that big. Right. And while I don't think a lot of the humor lands, I'm not a big fan of, like, fourth wall breaking humor, and boy, did they break the fourth wall in this game a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. I do recognize it's a script that tries very, very hard. Mm. And I totally believe this guy is a ghostwriter, too, because he does maybe the best possible job of linking together 120 seconds of unrelated commercials into a somewhat cohesive story. Mm-hmm. Once again, this is a story of people who are trying hard on something really dumb. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this script itself, once again, passed by without mostly any notes from Mars, except for a few things, as Liz Braswell goes on to explain in this quote. Quote, The advantage of having a licensor who has never done a video game before is that when you hand up a 300-page script, they say, uh, okay, it looks pretty good. The first set of comments I got back They wanted three changes. The first was a joke on the first page. The second was that they wanted me to eliminate the word damn and replace it with darn. (laughs) And the third was remove all snakes from the game. What? (laughs) Funny, that was her response too. (laughs) She goes on to say she laughs. So I called them back and said, what is this? And the guy was like, no snakes. We don't want snakes in the game. <laughs> oh, great. Good. <laughs> so I asked if that includes snake-like monsters. No, snake-like monsters are fine. And I oh. said, um, okay, so there are no snakes in this game. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that they looked at all of this. And we're like, okay, listen, he can't curse. Uh-huh. Can't even say damn. Uh-huh. It's game that we want to be adult. Yeah, adult, yeah. And then two, no no snakes. No snakes. We don't like snakes. It's a very um, it's very reminiscent of that story Kevin Smith once told of that like really stupid producer for Wild mm-hmm. Wild West who wanted like a giant spider and everything. It's just like uh-huh. why? That, why? Makes no sense. Okay, fine. I guess we'll figure it out. Once again, this is from the same interview that came out three months before the game was released.
1: Uh-huh. You could
0: really tell that Elizabeth here was just done. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah. these idiots. <laughs> I do not care, because this feels like a real bur- like burning bridges sort of moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, a big reason why the script was so long, once again, is because there's a ton of dialogue in this. In fact, this game is pretty much fully voice acted. I'm hmm. fairly certain there's like no real text boxes other than Sky's journal in this. Uh-huh. And this is kind of a novelty at the time. While games were slowly starting to move in this direction, most games still had a mix between voice and text when it came to presenting a story. And that's for AAA games. So it's quite surprising to see something like Dark and Sky go in this direction. Since it's essentially fully voiced, Boston Animation went out and got some pretty good voice talent for this project as well. hmm The main character, Sky, is voiced by Linda Larkin. Hmm. Linda Larkin is best known for being the voice of Jasmine, Disney's Aladdin. And is a Disney legend. And Uh I mean that literally, by the way. She's in the Disney Legend Hall of Fame. They they give Ah. you a a little plaque and everything. Uh, The uh, character of um, Dorian was played by Ramon de Ocampo, who's a TV actor with too many roles to count. And Rob Fruit, who I'm pretty sure I mispronounced that last name incorrectly and I apologize about that, the voice of Drax is the blue M&M and also oh. one of the Charmin bears. So the commercials where the bear gets very, very excited about wiping their butt uh-huh. is one of those bears. Amazing. Yes. Amazing career. I want to have that man's career. Absolutely. Once again, that's, that's kind of amazing. Like, mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to say like every like role person that was involved in this, like, was like an incredibly stellar, like, you know, top tier A list like cast, but like, you got the person who voiced Jasmine in here. Yeah. You're, you are trying. (laughs)
1: Yeah. No, they're, they're getting talent. And like the other, the interesting thing about is they're kind of pulling talent from, I guess I would say like the, like you said, TV actors. Mm hmm. Like the, the TV actor, voice actor, character actor pool. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, they're not going like Bob and the Barrel. We roped in some developers to do some voices, which was incredibly common around this time. They were like, mm-hmm. no, nah, we're going to shell out the money for, for talent. We're going right. to do this. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely crazy. So they got to work on this game, and they did their damnedest to make the best game about skills they possibly could while also making sure it barely involves Skittles in the first place. Something that, once again, incredibly intentional. Mm-hmm. This game itself is an action platformer that relies heavily on collecting Skittles in order to use magic. So you traverse the various worlds of the game, collecting these Skittles. And in turn, you not only get a bunch of like, offensive spells you use, but like, mm-hmm. abilities to like, shrink yourself, float, reanimate objects, protects, protect against hazards, turn people into wizards, among others. Like you get a ton of spells in this game, and it gives the game an almost Metroidvania sort of setup. Like there's a lot of like running back and forth, collecting skittles to put in like do, use certain combinations, like to do spells, to like find new items and whatnot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, and it's further broken up by like fetch quests and the occasional minigame or whatnot. Like it shows a level of ambition that is honestly out of place for, once again, a game about skittles. <laughs> now, in my opinion, it doesn't quite come together. Because uh-huh. it, it really feels like a third-person platformer made for the PC, circa like 1999. Mm, mm-hmm. Like it reminds me of like Urban Chaos, or weirdly Morrowind in like its style of movement. Mm. But it tries, right? And once again, that's where we get. This is where we get to that punchline I was setting up for. This is the most mm. tragic part of the story. Alex, they made a decent game. Yeah, they made a game that has, say, a 7.0 average on Metacritic or, like, user-reviewed Metacritic, uh, it got a 7.3 out of 10 on GameSpot. Mm-hmm. This might be a weird thing to call a tragedy to be like, wow, they made a good game, until you have the same realization that Boston Animation and Simon & Schuster had. Nobody, no matter how good the game was gonna be, was gonna buy a game based off of Skittles. No. Not their target demographic, anyways.
1: No, absolutely not. Like, I remember seeing Darken Skies on shelves, and I was really tempted to get it. I looked at it, and I was like, ooh, that was interesting. If I'd known that game was about Skittles, I would never would have looked at it
0: again. Yeah, yeah, because you would look at it and went, Oh, there's no way this can possibly be good. No. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 would turn around and walk away. And that's what most people did. Mm-hmm. Like they knew right off the bat that the second anyone learned it was gonna be about Skittles, they would laugh, not play it, walk away. Yep. And you don't have to take my word for it either. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> But this realization was so strong, two things happened. First, Simon & Schuster went to Mars and tried to get out of the deal. Mm. They wanted to strip all Skittles branding from the game. Now, remember, Mars didn't pay Simon & Schuster to make the game. Simon & Schuster paid Mars for the rights to make a Skittles (laughs) game. So they were like, you can keep the money, it's fine... Oh, <laughs> we just God. don't want to use your product anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, they signed a contract, and Mars, once again, wanted a game about Skittles. So they said, No, you have to do this. <laughs> so, with that avenue closed out, they instead stripped pretty much anything they could related to Skittles out of the marketing, the box art. No, mm-hmm. they might as well have removed it from the game. Yeah, huh? Now, I was going to show you an advertisement earlier, but and I'll, I'll post it in the show notes, but essentially the advertisement just makes it look like it's a generic game. Right. Like I redacted like a small little part that says that, you know, uh Skittles is a you know Mars property or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are actually some ads they put out that don't even include that, which really <laughs> don't know how they got away with. Like if you look on the back of like the actual box for the GameCube version, uh-huh. the incredibly, incredibly tiny text. You see like the copyright from Mars on there. Right. They did so hard to move such a direction away from this. And like, to the point that they almost succeeded. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, they couldn't avoid the reality that this was a Skittles game. Right. And when it came out, what they expected is what happened. It was mocked and forgotten, despite relatively decent reviews upon release on PC in February 20 of 2002.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Even when it was released that November on the Nintendo GameCube, it didn't fare much better. This was despite some reviews stating, quote, "Dark and Sky turns out to be a colorful and fairly entertaining game that's surprisingly funny, and that quote, Dark and Sky usually rises above its material, even letting you ignore the inherent silliness of a game based around a real-life candy." End quote. And that's the reason why I say this is kind of tragic. You know, uh huh. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say this would have been a success for Simon Schuster or Boston Animation, but given the games that like Simon Schuster had put out to this point. Right. Like they actually went for it.
1: So like, this is the weird thing to me is there are two ways you could have avoided this and it falls on both of them equally. One is Simon and and Schuster's just obsession with, Oh, let's get a licensed deal marketing brand and make video games of it. Hmm. Ends up being like the greatest hamper on one of the best games that they've actually made. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you put out completely original games like Panty Raider and Deer Avenger and Mm -hmm. beat up a millionaire. And then when you actually get someone to make you a decent game, you shackle it to this terrible license no one wants. Mm -hmm. Good job, I guess. Yep. And then the other falls on Mars, because if you had actually let them market this to a younger audience like they originally wanted to, this would have been the same as Cool Spot or Chester Cheetos Adventure Game, Mm -hmm. where it was like, yeah, kids will buy that game. yeah, Whatever. Kids love candy. Mm -hmm. You say, hey, here's a video game about candy and it's fun. Yeah, kids will buy that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, like, they already proved it with the couple of M&M's games they put out. Like, those were well-received. Yeah.
1: You you could have done the same thing with this and, like, market a good game to kids that makes them buy candy. Mm-hmm. But, no, you were obsessed with, oh, let's get the 20-year-olds to buy our candy by giving them this fa- That's not going to work, you idiots.
0: No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's is just misguided on all levels. And, like, it really makes me wonder, like... Like, we don't have a whole lot of details of, like, what they really tried to do to get out of this deal, other than mm-hmm. they tried to, and then Mars was like, no, you signed right. a contract. Like, could it have just been, like, we're actually going to make an entirely different game now, just because Skittles are which just make some right. Skittles shovelware, just so yeah, just maybe, get it out the door. Maybe, yeah. Or, like, like what they could have done to maybe get out of this. or Or maybe... Maybe they just... At that point, we're like, well, we either need to get out of this deal or we're just out of money. Right. Yeah. Because Simon Schuster and Boston Animation are not going to be making games for much longer after this. Right. Like, both are going to continue until 2005. Um, With the Boston Animation, their last game is going to be a Chris Moneymaker themed game about the World Poker Championships. (laughs) Uh, As well as like a Tonka Truck game that they made. Uh Uh-huh. For Simon & Schuster Interactive, uh, it's somehow worse. They were, Their last games they're going to publish are the Outlaw series. That includes Outlaw Golf and Outlaw Volleyball. Two mm-hmm. bad games. Mm-hmm. But the final game they're going to publish is a dual pack of two games. Outlaw Golf and Darkened Sky. A fact I find very depressing because once again, I really hate Outlaw Golf. <laughs> <laughs> then they quit the video game business for good and said... We'll we tried. Maybe we should just think about other digital media media. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, that's that's the story of the development of Dark and Sky. Like I said, kind of kind of tragic in a way. And yeah. Next time we're gonna be talking about the plot of Dark and Sky. A a story that once again, it goes hard. It goes hard in ways that you just would not expect. But that's gonna be for next time. Alex, how you feeling?
1: I f- I feel good. I don't know, man. Late nineties, early two thousands, video game development is such a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is. And like this is like one of the last games that's going to do this sort of like license game sort of like weirdness. Uh huh. Like there's gonna still be like a few more. Like Playboy the Mansion's gonna happen eventually, right? But like this is a dying breed, and it is one of the yeah. last of a dying breed.
1: Well, it's it's right at that inflection point where there's enough money in video games for Mm. it to matter Mm. but not so much that you won't take like risks or just do stupid crap
0: yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah and people are still figuring out like the exact formula of what consumers want so Mm. it's You're not to the point where it's like kind of formulaic triple-A development. Right. You you still have to take random stabs and just hope for the best.
1: Yeah, when you get to the 360 era, you're going to see just hundreds of middling, medium-effort games get shoveled on the shelves just like here. Mm -hmm. Here is this thing that obviously exists,
0: because of course it does. A million gray-brown games with mm-hmm. white guys with shaved heads holding knives, looking menacingly. Right. That, that is the future of mo- games.
1: That action movie came out. Here's its cover shooter ad- adaptation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Harry Potter and the Death Hallows came out. Here's our cover shooter for it. Yep. Still can't believe that game exists. That game's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it's... It's... I mean, I'm so happy Dark and Sky exists I am too And Alex, I,
1: go ahead. I wish it had a better name because yeah. in my mind it's how do I put this in my mind it is a game that I think came out on the PS2 because I confuse it with Drakken
0: Oh. and yeah. it
1: has the cover of Forgotten Realms Dark Alliance <laughs>
0: It kind of fits in that niche a little bit. A yeah. little
1: bit, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I should also explain. Dark and Sky. I mean, you, people at home probably see the title to this podcast episode, know how it's spelled, but Sky is spelled S K Y E, which of course it is, yeah. Which you know is the name of the protagonist, but it does yeah. it does give it like a little bit of whimsy that doesn't quite work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Especially because there were just that that. That name would just be used throughout the 2000s, like, so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really would. It really would. It was would.
1: everyone's favorite new girl name. Oh, God, yeah, it kind of was. was. Sky with an E.
0: Yeah, look at that. We're we're, we're in the, that weird period of the 2000s where we're going to name our kids basically a regular name, but we're going to just mix up the letters so nobody yeah, knows how to spell it. Yeah, just a little it. bit. It's, Freaking
1: J.R.R. Martin, goddammit.
0: Ugh, God. Damn it. <sighs>
1: Hate it. Hate it. George R. R. Martin, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I Close
0: told enough. you,
1: I don't read books.
0: You don't read books. That's fine. <laughs> I barely read books myself. Uh, but yeah, next time we're going to talk about the plot of Dark Sky. Alex, I appreciate you joining me as always. Of course. And for all of you who want to listen to more episodes of Fallen Through Plotholes, you should go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plotholes on your podcast service of choice. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all the good stuff. And uh, definitely leave us a review and subscribe and all that good stuff. We would love to know what you think of this episode. But until next time, everyone, take care. Take care.